of the matter is liberation is happening every day. This is true. Because, you know, it's not always the huge movements. Like, that's a big piece of it, right? How we come together to collectively work for social change. But it's also how we interact with each other on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. It's also, our, does our behavior align with our vision and what we believe? Or is our behavior being guided by something that supersedes those things and we're out of alignment? Yeah. <laughs> This is your Kick-Ass Life Podcast, episode number 285 with guest Dr. T. Williams. This is the Your Kick-Ass Life Podcast with Andrea Owen, a no BS guide to self-help and badassery. Because ladies, let's face it, life's too short for it to not kick ass. And here's your host, the girl who serves it up straight with a side of crazy, Andrea Owen. Hey there, Ask Kickers. Welcome to another episode of the podcast. As always, I am so glad that you are here. Hey, you know what? I got a brand new microphone for the podcast so y'all can have a better pleasurable experience of listening to me. I figure I've been doing this for six years now. It's time to upgrade my microphone. And then I forgot that I got it because I put it away because I do things like that. (laughs) Remembered? I was like, oh, I shoved that in the closet. I should probably bring it out. So my hope is that for the week after next, I will have a brand new microphone, at least for the intro for you. Maybe for next week. Next week, I'm really excited. I am, I, I announced a couple of weeks ago that I am going to start coaching people and bring them to you as podcast episodes. So that's coming next week. I have a woman named Rachel that I coached, and I actually have an update from her that I will talk to you about at the end of the episode as well. So can't wait for that. Stay tuned. All right. So this episode right here has been a long time coming. And by long time coming, I think it's been two and a half years in the making. And if you are a longer listener of the podcast, you might remember in 2016, after the election, I think like many of us, I was flipping tables and just really having my eyes open to so many things that I didn't before and fairly quickly realized that it wasn't helpful for me to just be like, all in a place of anger, like, ah, the injustices of the world and, you know, shaking my fist. And that's not really all that helpful. What I realized is that I personally needed to take a step back and unlearn a lot of the things that I have learned and look at things through a new lens and then figure out what I can do, given someone with a platform that I do, what I can do that's helpful. So I've spent a decent amount of time conversing with people, asking the right people, what is the answer to that? And I I don't know if there's one perfect right answer. I really don't. And how this brings us to today's episode is one of my teachers has been Dr. T. Williams. As we will talk about in this episode, I took a class of his... Uh, the day that the months all run together for me, y'all, I am the worst when it comes to trying to remember when this was. I want to say it was over the holidays. Maybe it was late last year. Maybe it was the beginning of this year. But at any rate, I took his class, Foundations for Social Justice, and we will talk a little bit about that in the episode. And I wanted to bring him on today to give you a brief overview of his work and really what I learned 
in that program. And it's still obviously a learning process as it always is, but it was so incredibly helpful. He is in academia. He has a PhD in social justice. And this whole especially the online world of social justice can be very confusing and overwhelming. And that's what we talk about as well. What do we do? Who do we learn from? Where do we start? What does it all mean? What does social justice mean? What does liberation mean? And all of these things, these words that get thrown around so much and... A lot of us don't know what they actually mean or what they look like, and we're a little might be a little embarrassed to even ask. And that is one of the many reasons I wanted to have Dr. T on. He teaches with such grace and such a great sense of humor. He's just a pleasure to be around. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Dr. T is an educator, consultant, and writer residing in Los Angeles, California. His passion is helping people and organizations transform themselves so that together we can collectively transform the world. He loves pit bulls and sci-fi and testing new recipes in the kitchen, but he hates doing dishes. In his free time, you can find him wondering why his beard looks so huge on camera and figuring out how to indulge his off-season cravings for Tangela. You can see what Dr. T is up to at imdrt.com and feel free to follow him as he attempts to learn how to use Instagram at imdrt. And without further ado, here is Dr. T Williams. Dr. T, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here. I've been looking forward to this for, for a minute now. For a minute. I know it's been several months and I wanted to have you, I knew immediately I wanted to have you on the show when I took your class and I'm going to mess up the, the title of it. So, so tell me the name of it, the class that I took. Foundations of Social Justice. That's what I thought. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going with my gut. But yes, Foundations of Social Justice. And to say I was blown away is an understatement. And I know still that that by no means was the end of my journey or my education around this. And mm-hmm. it has just started. And I, I knew I wanted to have you on because this is such an important topic And it's one that I have talked about a while back. I will pop the links in the show notes to the couple of topics that I I sort of introduced this. And I wanted to to have you on because I've gotten some questions from my audience over the last, especially over the last couple of years as this topic has come to the forefront of our lives. And you and I were talking right before we started recording and I think it's what the theme, and I'm kind of saying this like out loud just so I stay on Mm -hmm. track. And to introduce it, but the theme that I would love for this to be is what we can do because I don't think it's any mm-hmm. secret to my yeah, listener, yeah, yeah. you know what's going on out there. Although it is something that we'll, we'll talk about, but what we can do, not so much that in terms of action, which I know is a big question for my audience, mm-hmm. but what what are we doing, like on a deeper level, not just the action steps, but it's kind kind of the why, but more so like what is the quote unquote work, capital W work. And that's what you are an expert at. (laughs) Yes, that is a very fair question. Where I would start this discussion is by by acknowledging that because that soundbite gets dropped a lot by a whole bunch of different people and it's extremely confusing. And so uh, let's. Uh, one of the things that I want to be very, very clear about is that the people who do social justice and liberation work 
don't always agree. We don't, there, there are some areas regarding goals, things that we'd like to see happen that we may agree, but to a large extent, we also, we, we disagree when it comes to strategy, when it comes to methods, when it comes to meaning making, when it comes to what is and is not appropriate, what should and should not happen, what we expect from allies. Like there are very broad areas where we disagree. It sounds like just feminism in general. I'm thinking of feminism when you're talking about that. Like a lot of the experts disagree. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one would, would could easily argue femi- feminism is a part of uh, or falls under the umbrella of social justice. And yeah, absolutely. Not everyone agrees. So, you know, when we're, if we're being accurate in trying to determine what the work is, the answer to the question, what is the work, is that it largely depends on who's who's speaking, right? It's, it depends on the person who's saying, do the work. Because the work that I do is not the same as a lot of the work that other people in the online social, social justice space do. It, it's very, very different, grounded in a different place and have has different philosophies, expectations, ethos, so forth and so on. So all of that being said, the first step in answering that question is to think critically about what is being said, who is saying it, what are the, what are the assumptions behind uh, what is being said, and really sort of carefully taking a look at that, the context and the platform in which the person is, is speaking. We can dive a little bit more into that later. But, okay. Could you could you tell by look on my face that I had a question? <laughs> well, I mean, we can dive into it now, too. So, so here's the thing. I, one of the first things I noticed is that when I came into this space is the amount of contradiction that's there, right? So you have, you have some people who are saying, who posit themselves as educators. And then when you have a question, will say either don't take advantage or don't expect emotional and intellectual labor, which is fair. But if you're an educator, that's sort of, you know, that's a little point of confusion. There is, there's a lot of space for contradiction. So one of the things that I did was to create this webinar called uh, Navigating the Online Social Justice Space. Mm-hmm. Which we will put a link to that in the show notes. Well, I'm, I'm revamping it now. I'm revamping okay. it now. So, Don't um, tease us. No, I'm not teasing. So that's fair. That's fair. So what I'll do is I'll create a, a mailing list or, or a link where you can sign up for the webinar so that when it's ready to go a new and improved version, then I'll let everyone know. Thank you. Because that you're right. That's not really fair. But the goal of that whole thing was to help people learn to navigate the confusion, the contradiction, and the uncertainty. Uh, and a big part of that for me is learning the art of discernment and learning the art and applying the art of critical thinking. I will say this, never give up your critical thinking. Mm-hmm. Don't do it for me. Don't do it for any of the other people that you find in this space. Can you give an example of that? Because I know that my audience, they all know what critical thinking is, Uh but in the context of this topic, what might that look like? Okay. So for example, the first part of critical thinking or a big part of it is, is, is the source of information reliable? So for example, when Hillary Clinton was running for president, there was a story that there was a pizza shop that, that was engaged in child trafficking. Mm-hmm. And there was a there was a guy who showed up to that pizza pizza place with a gun, determined to interrupt it. 
And he got that information from a source that was very unreliable, that was really designed to smear Hillary Clinton. So in this case, and you know, I don't know much about the guy. He could have been predisposed to this kind of behavior in the first place. But a part of, uh, of a sort of navigating that is taking a look at this website. Is this website reliable? Do they provide accurate information? And, 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 right? So that's one example. A second example would be when someone says, do the work. Now, uh, a second part of critical thinking is to examine the inherent assumptions. That was the other thing I was going to ask you about that I wrote down. Right. So when someone says, do the work, then there are a lot of assumptions there. Mm -hmm. A, the assumption is that you know what the work is. True. B, the assumption is that you know how to do it. C, you know, I mean, there's a whole bunch of them. But the thing is this, if someone says do the work and you, you question that and you critique it and you think about it from a critical perspective and you're looking at the assumptions and you come up with a whole bunch of additional question marks, that ain't necessarily a bad thing. There are folks who in, in the online social justice space who are determined to tell you what to think. Mm -hmm. And at that point, what you're doing becomes a performance. I'm not interested in telling you what to think. I'm interested in teaching you how to think. And given that, here are some concepts, here are some theories, here are some information around this phenomenon that we're learning about together. Mm -hmm. And my expectation is that you will use your, your inherent brilliance and your critical thinking in the evaluation and the incorporation of this information, and then go out into the world and do what you do. Not go out into the world and do what I do or say what I say. Okay. That's what I was going to ask you. <laughs> okay. I was going to ask, how have you seen that that works really well or even that that is better, if that's fair to say, when you were saying, I want to teach people how to think? Well, I don't have all of the information. I don't have all of the answers. And certainly for as long as I've been doing this work and as much information I have, I know some stuff. But by no means do I know it all. So I'll give an example. In one of my Facebook groups, Everyday Action, that group is set up so that people interact with each other. It's not me always being the expert. So when someone asks a question, I don't answer it right away because I know that there are people in the community who will answer before I do, right? And it's brilliant. And I love it so much because there are people in that group who have perspectives that I don't have and information that I don't have and have lived lives that I don't have. And sometimes they give a far more helpful answer than I possibly could. I'm not invested in appearing to know everything. Like I'm not invested in having to have all of the answers. I'm invested in creating a, a more liberatory world. That's mm -hmm. my investment. I love what you just said. And that's a great segue because I wanted to ask you, because I think the word liberation gets thrown out, you know, into, into our spaces and everyone's like fist pumping over it. But I think a lot of people are looking around and they're like, I'm not exactly sure what that means. So can you tell us what liberation is? And no, you don't have a time limit. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Yeah. Cause it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. Run with it. So again, people in this space use different frameworks or have different perspectives, right? A framework is just a fancy academic word for a structured way of thinking about a given phenomenon. So if we're talking about a uh, liberation framework, it means a structured way of thinking about 
issues of social justice from a liberation perspective. Now, that being said, my version of, of what this means uh, comes from my work um, as a doctoral candidate with my mentor, Dr. Barbara Love, and a plethora of colleagues. And so we were, so the social justice education program at the University of uh, Massachusetts Amherst, that's where I got my second master's and doctorate in social justice education. And it was, I, I believe it was the first social justice program uh, in higher ed in the country. And so there came a point where uh, we were thinking and co-creating theory and all of these sorts of things where we realized that the way that we were doing the work was not sustainable. And a lot of what we were doing was anti-oppression work and that wasn't enough. Is that why it wasn't sustainable? Um, that's part of it. Absolutely. Okay. But also part of it is that there are tendencies that come, I think, with being, uh, with doing social justice work. Those of us who do this work, for example, don't, are, are historically known for having very poor self-care and burning the candle at both ends and in the middle. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's, this work is hard and it's grueling and it's emotionally and spiritually exhausting. And we just realized that it, there's, there must be something more. Dr. Love, or Miss Barbara, as I call her, is just brilliant. And I adore her because she is the probably, my thinking has been shaped by a lot of people. She's probably, she's at the top of the list. Barbara yeah. spoke a lot about liberation. So we, and she's not of the written tradition. She's kind of the oral tradition. So we were like, all right, let's do, let's get together and think on this. And that's what we did. We got together and we thought about it. And what came out of that is what we call um, critical liberation theory. This is the definition that Barbara offers uh, and that I agree to. It's a little long, so you have to listen carefully, okay? Liberation is the creation of relationships, societies, communities, organizations, and collective spaces characterized by equity, fairness, and the implementation of systems for the allocation of goods, services, benefits, and rewards that support the full participation of each human and the promotion of their full humanness. Mm -hmm. That is a very broad definition. Now, if we, yeah. so there are a couple of important pieces of that. Uh, number one it's, uh, is the word equity versus equality. Equity and equality are not the same thing. Equality is giving everyone the same thing. Equity is giving everyone what they need to achieve the same result. Second, implementation of systems. And so very often when we talk about any form of oppression, racism, sexism, or what have you, the conversation gets had at the individual level. And we neglect the cultural and the institutional level. So that's a very important piece of this. Um, and then second, the full participation of, hum of each human and the promotion of their full humanness. And so dehumanization is a one of the core tools in every system of oppression. And given that every human being has multiple social identities, we learn how to dehumanize other human beings and simultaneously learn to be dehumanized, right? It gets really, really complicated. Okay, so that being said, Liberation is a couple of other things. The way that I break it down is that liberation is a framework and a philosophy 
It's a structured way of thinking about inequality and thinking about uh, what to do in place of inequality. It's a philosophy in terms of it's a, it has a specific ethos and a specific way of approaching this work. It is a vision and a goal. In other words, mm -hmm. a big part of the work of liberation is the creation of liberatory visions, right? The creation of the thing that we want to work toward. Uh, it is also a path and a process. So a big part of uh, liberation work is not just envisioning the vision and articulating the goals, but walking the path to those things using processes that are in alignment with the philosophy, with the vision, and with the ethos. And then last yeah. but not least, it's a living practice, right? So as humans grow, as humanity in general grows, as we adapt to our social circumstances and context and so forth and so on, how we interact with each other and how we interact with systems of inequality also changes, right? And the thing about systems of inequality is that when human, when the collective consciousness of human beings catches up to a system of inequality and says, this is unacceptable, and then puts things in place to mitigate it and to pull it apart and deconstruct it, what happens is those systems morph into something else. Mm -hmm. So it's a living practice in that we must consistently be uh, vigilant in, in looking at the ways that this morphing occurs and addressing those as well. Now, one of the biggest pieces of liberation, one of the biggest pieces of the philosophy is an emphasis on fighting for what we want rather than against what we don't want. And that's one of the one of the biggest things I remember from your class that sticks up, that sticks out at me. And like maybe it's just because it was sort of a bottom line version. But I, I think based on what we see, and maybe this is sort of a side question, but what we see in the online space and what I think honestly, most of my listeners see in the online space, there's a lot of popular platforms out there that are fighting for what we don't want. So is that, I guess, and I don't want to cut you off, but I'm curious also at the same time, is that ever good? Is that ever good? Yes. And, um, it's necessary, but not sufficient. Fighting against, that's what I would frame as an anti-oppression framework. And yeah. the anti-oppression framework really sort of emerged out of the 60s and 70s and early 80s. Very powerful work has been done using that framework, very necessary work. That was the work that myself and my colleagues did for a while that we just sort of figured there has to be something more. There has to be a different way to do this. And so what we determined is that the challenge of doing anti-oppression work is that you're always fighting against something. That means that you don't set the agenda necessarily, that you that it is not your vision that is driving your work. It is fighting against the vision of someone else that is driving your work. And to me, I'm speaking for myself, anti-oppression work does not instill hope. It's not encouraging. It's not fulfilling. I burn myself out three times doing that work. Yeah. For me, fighting for articulating a vision for what the world looks like and for myself personally, and then connecting with other human beings and sharing our visions and our articulating a larger vision and then working in society on behalf of that vision, that feels better to me. That feels hopeful. That feels encouraging. That feels sustaining. And the thing is, 
when you're working towards something, you will naturally and inherently come up against the things that are in the way, the things mm-hmm. that we have to fight against, right? Yeah. So uh, you will still do that work, but the larger context and the place of your attention, the place where your attention will be most focused is on the thing that you want, not fighting against the thing that you don't want. When you first introduced this to us in the class, I remember being really cynical about it. <laughs> you know, there were reasons for that, but I, I think... And, and this, it wasn't my experience, but I wonder if people, when they hear that, like, let's, let's fight for what we want and create this, you know, vision of what we want. One might think, well, isn't that, but I know that this isn't it, but I, isn't that kind of um, like, oh, that's great and spiritual for you and, and like sticking your head in the sand. But I know that that with what you're talking about is so much deeper than mm-hmm. that. And then at the same time as humans, the reason I asked my previous question about, fighting against what we don't want to me. And I I might be very wrong here, but to me, it seems like just as human beings, when we get fired up and even sometimes full of rage about the injustices of the world, that's when you get people to, to come to this new consciousness of what's actually going on. Okay. There was a lot there. I know. So let me say this, what we're, what we're talking about here in this discussion for the, for the audience who's listening, this is a very small snippet. Of, of what liberation is and the framework and the underlying philosophy and assumptions and all of those things. So please bear in mind, you're getting us a small piece of this. That being said, yeah. when there is a piece of the philosophy of liberation and critical liberation theory that says that humans are inherently good. And I remember hearing Barbara articulate that and hearing Barbara talk about liberation in this really compelling way but the first thing that came to my mind is that's a bullshit. Like that is the absolute like worst, any cynical thought that you can have. I had it, man. And here I am years later, having fully bought in and now I'm teaching this, that same perspective to my students. So understand that yes, cynicism will be there, but understand that that cynicism comes from a place of anger, hurt and hopelessness. That one of the most powerful things that systems of oppression does to human beings is that it robs us of our imagination. And Mm -hmm. if you cannot imagine something other than what is something that uh, if you cannot imagine something other than the status quo, then it makes the creation of something more almost impossible. It, It inherently instills a sense of hopelessness because you cannot envision anything else. So if you are having a reaction that is inherently cynical, just know it ain't just you, but also know that the interrogation of those feelings of cynicism is a necessary part of your personal liberation work. You need to understand where your personal cynicism comes from. Because really what liberation, what the framework says is figure out what's important to you Figure out what the world would look like in an ideal scenario, right? Something that uh, promotes the full participation and the promotion of all of our full humanity and work toward it Mm -hmm. consistently Mm -hmm. every day. Align your behavior with your beliefs in the action of social change. I can see why people would be cynical. And what's the alternative? Right. Well, it's, it's interesting because in the work that I do and what my people are most used to me hearing me talk about... And again, if I can like kind of 
find an analogy is because I tell people all the time, like, think about the, like, let's say someone has like really difficult family of origin Mm -hmm. and they're forced to go hang out with them or they feel obligated to hang out with them at Christmas. And if they come into me and saying like, this is, this has been continuing. My parents are this way and it's unacceptable around them. I've tried conversations with them and they're not, then I'm like, you need to set a boundary. You know, like the, it's not. So if I were to come to them and say like, let's envision like the best case scenario and like keep working towards that. Like somebody gets to a certain point where it's like, how much can you take? But I, but that's not, it's a good analogy and a bad analogy. I think because we're talking about two very, not necessarily, right? Because part of doing liberation work is doing your individual work. It's not just about systems change. It's about doing your work as a human being you were healing from the things that you need to heal from and uh, developing the ability to create liberatory responses to challenging situations. Now, a liberatory response doesn't mean that you take shit from people all day. Sometimes a liberatory response means learning to love people from a distance. Because they're inherently good, right? Well, so here's, so, and this is the challenge of like taking these, these, these little bites of it, right? Because all of the context and nuance gets lost. The thing about humans being inherently good is that when we all come out of the womb, we are inherently good. As young people, mm-hmm. we are inherently good. And things happen to us. Part of what happens to us is that systems of, of oppression squeeze us, force us, abuse, abuse us, cajole us, cajoles us into playing the roles that we play. So when I think about how I was raised uh, as a boy to become a man, there was no room for softness, no room for tenderness, no room for the ability to freely display my emotion. Yeah. Right? So it's not by happenstance that when Barbara one day asked me what I felt about something, I responded with what I thought. She said, well, what, how do you feel about X, Y, Z? I said, well, I think blah, blah, blah. And she said, okay, you told us. That's not what I asked. Yeah. <laughs> she, said, she said, you've told us what you think. That tells us how you feel. And so I sat there for a second. I was like, ooh, this is challenging. And then I said, well, I think blah, 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 blah. And she said, okay, tell us how you feel. And I was like, I'm trying. And the thing about that that was so frustrating <laughs> for me is that I couldn't answer the question. I, I like I could feel the pressure inside me of emotion, right? I knew it was there, but I couldn't access it. And even if I could access it, I didn't have the language to talk about it. And that pissed me off. And then I realized that I was pissed off because I couldn't access my emotions, which pissed me off even further. And so I'm sure along the way to rediscovering that, that I've done some disastrous things and some callous things because I didn't have access to my full range of emotion. I didn't start out as a child this way. Things have happened to me such that this is where I am. So there there are caveats that go with the statement of humans are inherently good. One of them is that, and things happen to us. Another of them is that humans are inherently good and sometimes we do terrible things. But another of those is that humans are inherently good, things happen to us, but also every day that we wake up holds the possibility that we can begin the journey back to our fullest humanity. Which, circling all the way back, our fullest humanity is inherently good. Ta-da! There you go. 
Which, you know, and I agree with that. And, and let me also say that, uh, again, initially, I wasn't about this life. <laughs> well, I would talk this stuff, and I'd be like, well, come on now. Come on. Really? Like, really? And she was like, so there you go. And that's how I was when, when you started teaching that in our class. And I, I think in, in that particular class that where you were teaching that it was only me and one other guy in the class and he was a white dude. And I think I was especially like putting the walls up, like, no, I don't believe you, Dr. Mm -hmm. T. (laughs) I trust you, but I don't believe Mm -hmm. you. And, and yeah, and that came from, it was a lot of emotions going on, but the cynicism was just from, I think my own, it was, it was a couple of things. My own pain of being dehumanized so many times Mm -hmm. because of sexism. And at the same time, understanding that my pain was, you know, that, that black women have it worse than I do, that LGBTQ plus people have it worse than I do, people with disabilities poor people, et cetera, et cetera. And feeling the weight of it all. So feeling the anger (laughs) and the rage of the, of decades of dehumanization and feeling like I didn't have the right to talk about Mm -hmm. it. That's where my cynicism came from. And A, I completely understand that. And B, this is one of the challenges of a lot of the stuff that I see in the contemporary social justice space. It's the, the dismissal or or unacknowledgement, unacknowledgement, that's not even the word, or lack of acknowledgement of the feelings of members of dominant groups. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to talk a little bit about centering. So I may be jumping ahead a little bit, but. Yeah, no, I think it's a great segue. Go ahead and take the reins if you will. But I wanted to say something. I wanted to ask you a question before we go there, because I'm curious yeah. about what was the tipping point for you? Like, because I remembered you had a very strong reaction. And part of that reaction was physical. It was all over your face. And I was like, ooh, that's interesting. You mean when you were talking about right. liberation and it being like a vision and a goal? You, you, you gave us an assignment and you wanted us to write out what our vision was. And I remember looking at the blank page and just thinking like, you've got to be kidding me. Like it, sound, it felt so like airy fairy and just like impossible. Cause you said that you, and I might be wrong, but I remember you saying that you believe that it's possible to see in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think that's where I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Like. <laughs> no, I didn't say, I didn't say it's, it's possible to see all of it in my lifetime. Okay. Maybe that's where I misunderstood right. you. So, so the thing is, I can remember a time it, it, where it was nowhere on the radar a possibility that gay marriage would, or that people would openly identify as gay. There was a, I can clearly remember a period of history in my life where that was not the case. That is not really? the case. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Chicago. You grew up in Chicago, yeah. and I don't. I think you're like my age, right? Like, yeah. are you Generation X? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And so yeah. when I was a kid. I, no one was openly gay identified. Well, yeah, no, I guess I can remember kind of same. I grew up in Southern California, but I never thought gay people could be married. I knew like one or two gay people, but it was kind of like whispered about and they were protected. Yeah. So if we're talking about liberation, I would say being able to openly declare who you are and be who you are and love who you want and have that recognized by the institution's of the society you live in, that's a fair step in the right direction. 
for liberation. So, you know, again, we may not see all of our vision of liberation occurring, but we will see some liberation in our lifetime. And the fact of the matter is, liberation is happening every day. This is true. Because, you know, it's not always the huge movements. Like, that's a big piece of it, right? How we come together to collectively work for social change. But it's also how we interact with each other on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. It's also, our, does our behavior align with our vision and what we believe? Or is our behavior being guided by something that supersedes those things and we're out of alignment? Yeah. But what was the thing that, that made you say, okay, all right, I get this liberation thing. All right, fine, you were right. Like, what was that thing? I think that it was it was helpful for you as someone who's followed social justice movements, especially in the in the arena of racism on, on social media platforms. And and it's been made very clear to me that as a white woman, we don't want to see your white lady tears. We don't like there is no space for your story. There's no room for your feelings. And I can I and I and I can get like of course that the work is more important than my feelings, but at the same time, I feel like even that's dehumanizing. Like, well, wait a minute. So what, what am I just supposed to do this with my therapist? Like, or with my other white lady friends? Because I don't think that that's all that. So it's very confusing. So I, I, to that point, to answer your question, I felt like it was helpful to be able to, you know, as a member of an oppressed group yourself, like to be able to say like, it's okay. It's, you know, where I'm not going to chastise you. And, you know, it's not like you're like, you have this whole hour to talk about your feelings. It wasn't anything like that. But I think just permission was mm-hmm. helpful. And it allowed me to, because I think what was happening is like, if I get stuck in my own feelings and my own rage and anger, I'm not doing yeah. anything. I'm just like, go, you go into like that survival your head's not there. You can't, you can't think about liberation when you're in that place. So it was helpful for you to do that as an educator and someone who is what we say, holding the space. But I think just breaking it down. And I, I think one of the things that struck me was if you don't have this, then you don't have hope. And also thinking about my kids, like I want something very different for them. They're generation Z and they're a very different generation than we are. And I, my hope is that they can, like my son listened to all 14 episodes of, there's a podcast that I keep recommending here called Seen on Radio. It was, I feel like it was really well done and he's 11, you know, and he, he wanted to listen to all of them intently. And, and I'm like, it blows my mind. Like I, this is such a different education Mm -hmm. than I got like worlds Mm -hmm. different. So I look at these children and I'm like, that, that to me is my vision and liberation. And it's, it's small, but it's mighty. Absolutely. Absolutely. A hundred percent. Young people are my favorite teachers, like all day, every day. And um, the brilliance that I see articulated and enacted by young people is just I mean, I, listen, I can go on and on and on about children. And I remember one of the things that you struggled with when you were thinking about your own rage and when your own rage was coming up was also understanding that you had a son. And, mm-hmm. you know, who, who, who will he grow up to be? 
will he grow up to be one of those men who did those things that now have me enraged? And that's not what I want. And how do I stop that? How do I, how do I, how do I, like all of these questions coming up? And so I think, um, I think, I think a whole bunch of stuff. I got like 50 thoughts. Let's, right, let's talk about this idea of there are, there's no room for your feelings. Uh, I don't subscribe to that. I think what's very problematic about the online social justice space is that it very often gets done from a single identity or a dual identity. So either someone is anti-oppression or, or which is, you know, race lens or it's a race and gender lens, right? And so a lot of times that, so, and, and that's, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. The problem is, is when that's the only approach. If all you do is anti-racism work and you're not doing it in an intersectional way such that you are talking about classism, you are talking about religious oppression, you are talking about ableism, then you're not addressing the full range of the oppression that you're working against. You're working on a very narrow slice. And if we're taking an intersectional approach, well, so even the word intersectional has, has evolved where it was its original meaning and, and how it gets you today, not necessarily the same thing. But that being said, here's what we know. Human beings have multiple social identities. And there are very few people who have all dominant identities or all targeted identities. So what that means is our everyday experience is an amalgamation of, or a combination of both dominance and subordination. So using myself, mm -hmm. I'm black, but I'm also cisgendered. I'm what you call a right. class strata. I mean, I grew up working class, but by virtue of where I am now, I would be middle class, right? So mm -hmm. all of those things make a difference in terms of how I experience oppression. Now, the thing is, you can't necessarily look at someone and tell what their identities are 100% of the time. So it's not a safe assumption I think to deal with people in, in ways that assume that they don't also carry the hurts and trauma of oppression. It may not be the exact oppression, but there is still hurt and trauma there, right? So mm -hmm. we know that white women aren't just white. They're also women, right? They're also, they also have a class status. They also have a sexual orientation. They also have a religion. They also have the intersection of religion and gender and we all know that there's all kinds of fucked upness in various religious institutions when it comes to uh the intersection of that institution and gender so the idea that there's no space for you is ridiculous now here's the caveat this space may not be the space but there's always space for every human being who is processing trauma. There's always space for whatever the feelings you have are, mm -hmm. even if they are quote unquote unjustified, right? Or, or they don't make sense, or, or, or. Because the fact of the matter is, the, what oppression has done to the way to human beings and the way human beings think, healing is necessary both of dominant groups and targeted groups. Everybody has got to heal. White people got to heal. People of color got to heal. Now, here's the thing. That's a very contentious thing to say, right? I don't particularly give a fuck. 
<laughs> well, that's kind of like what you were saying in the very beginning about how the people that do this work disagree about things. That's one of them. Oh, that's a big one. Absolutely. This is yeah. this is one of the reasons that I've been told that I coddle white people. Listen. No, no, not that you coddle white people, specifically white women. Yes, <laughs> white, well, white people in general and specifically white women. Here's the thing. I'm an educator, mm-hmm. right? And I have a very well thought out pedagogy and approach that I've used for decades. So I'm not coming to this new. I've done this work at the highest levels of academia consistently across many, many years. And I say all of that to say that if we're looking at oppression from a holistic perspective, we understand that every form of oppression is set up so that it depends on, is connected to, and perpetuates every other form of oppression. That is why intersectionality is necessary. Audrey Lord talked about this. Uh, Sojourner Truth talked about this when she talked about Ain't I a Woman. Like, this is not new information to those, to those people who have studied this deeply and intensely. So there are a couple of different camps. There are those people, well, let me also say this. I believe that when we do this work together, we will go further, faster, and deeper than we will ever do this work when we're working alone. So when I went into the social justice program, I would say uh, I was still unpacking my homophobia and I was probably rocking some serious sexism. In the community that I was in, when I made sexist mistakes, that community did not throw me away. I got called in, we sat down, we had conversations, we exchanged perspective. Space was held for me while I learned to be better and do better and know better. Now, when those very same people made racist mistakes or classist mistakes or ableist mistakes, I did the same for them. I called them in. I held space for them. I granted them grace as they granted me grace, and we learned together. And I will say that that way of doing the work has led me to where I am today. I feel like I've yeah. you know, gained an immense amount of empathy, respect, and understanding, not just of my own oppression, but the oppression of other people. Mm-hmm. Now, that, one quick thing. There are some uh-huh. people who don't want to do the work with you, right? So part of their work is having a space to heal that does not include a member of the dominant group. And that's fine, too. My work yeah. is that you can do both. I can go in spaces where there are all people of color and heal from that, but I can also go in spaces where there are mixed group and, and, and pull people along and be pulled along by others. I'm wondering if you can, you mentioned a term that I think gets thrown around a lot in these spaces. And it's the, and one thing I, I, I took away from the class that you taught was calling in versus calling out. And we live in call out culture and cancel culture. We see a lot of, and it just, I, I believe mm-hmm. it makes people scared not want to do the work at all or just be really voyeuristic about mm-hmm. it. And then you're making up stories and not really sure what's happening. So can you, can you speak to that? The calling in versus calling out? What's the difference? Um, the big difference is what are your goals? Like, you know, this is what I'm saying to be uh, use your critical thinking. Because if we cancel every person that makes a single mistake, rather than using that as a teachable moment and creating space for that person to do some learning and work their way back from their mistake, none of us will be here. Because I guarantee you, 
if I've done homophobic things and heterosexist things, I've done sexist things, uh, and I guarantee you, you've probably done some racist things. Oh yeah. Everybody that who's I've done ageist things. Yep. On a video, and I apologize for it, and that person canceled me anyway. I was like, okay. So here's the thing: all of us have made mistakes, and Mm -hmm. it's astounding to me that there are people who think that it's okay to cancel other human beings for making a mistake. Now, that's not to say all mistakes are the same, right? Harvey Weinstein, yo, listen. Yeah. That Can you work your way back from something like that? It's possible. The question is, are you willing to do the work? Right? So I can't remember this brother's name, but, it's, but there was a guy who was a founding member of the Clips, I believe. I gotta find the name of this dude. Anyway, it's one of the most notorious street gangs in the history of the United States. Sent to prison for life. Was on death row. Of course, it took years for him to get to the point where he became executed. But during that time, he began to read. He began to educate himself. He began to grow. And over time, transformed himself into a different person. Such that he wrote several children's books. He was a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. He brokered mm-hmm. several peace deals uh, between street gangs in Los Angeles. All of these things, right? All of these things that he did that illustrated that who he what who he who he is and who he was are not consistent. Mm-hmm. And again, it took many years for this to happen. But the point is this: if if human beings start out as inherently good. Then, if we're willing to do the work and we have the time and the space and the opportunity to heal, we can work our way back to that inherent goodness. Mm-hmm. So, call in and call out culture. Call in is about accountability. And it's about accountability in a way that maintains connection, that maintains relationship, and that it is meant to create a learning experience. Call out is punitive in nature, it's meant to Uh, In some cases, to stop harm. Mm -hmm. In some cases, it's meant to punish people. But my thing is this. You call people in until they refuse to come in, and then you call them out. Yeah, that's what I remember you saying. And and also, there are, you know, when it comes to brands, uh, I think it works a little differently when you're working with people versus institutions and companies, right? Because... Uh, companies, institutions, generally speaking, don't respond very well to being called in. Sometimes they do, but institutions don't don't exist, or most institutions, particularly uh, for-profit institutions, don't exist to to make the world a better place. Generally speaking, they exist to make money, and so that's right. what they respond to. So I think it's a little bit different when we're um, when we're calling out a company and an institution versus calling in the people in our lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for speaking to that. All right. Well, and I know we kind of mentioned it a little bit earlier and just threw out the term. And this was actually one of the questions from one of my, my patrons a few months ago. And she asked the question, you know, how can we not center ourselves? Mm-hmm. So maybe just even start from the beginning. Like what, what is that? And what are your thoughts? Okay. So, One of the dynamics of oppression is that members of dominant groups come to come to be and expect to be 
the center of the universe and everyone in it. So what that means is that they, their perspectives, their culture, their bodies, their phenotype, their needs, their desires are the things upon which the universe turns. Uh, in this context, what, uh, so, so just to be clear, that is a general dynamic of oppression. In this context, centering is an extension of that, of that dynamic in which uh, members of dominant groups consciously or unconsciously uh, position themselves as the most important part of a situation or discussion. And that includes their feelings, their perspectives, uh, their understandings, uh, their particular meaning making or any other aspect of themselves. So one example of that would be uh, white tears, right? You've heard that phrase. And I always hear it as white lady tears. Is it just white it, tears? It, either, because generally, <laughs> generally speaking, we're talking about white women because, you know, patriarchy does not allow men to burst out in tears when they when they're hurt um but generally speaking white tears is a phenomenon whereby somebody who is white usually a woman does something that is hurtful inappropriate oppressive and will get called on it and will burst into tears and it happens Mm -hmm. so frequently that it has its own name so what happens when that happens is that everything stops And as opposed to the attention being paid to the person who was originally injured, all of the attention shifts to the person who's crying. And that's like you punching me in the face. And I say, hey, that hurt. And you start, you burst into tears. And everyone says, oh my God, she's crying. Look what your face did to her fist. You don't, you understand what I'm saying? And it sounds ridiculous in that, in in that context, but that's precisely what it is. And so what that does is it centers that the person who's crying, right? It's a, it's a very, very powerful dynamic, whereas the attention should be placed on the person who has experienced the racism. The attention gets centered on the person who's doing the crying, the white woman who's doing the crying. So that's an example, I would say, both of white fragility and centering. I think another example would be uh, needing to feel comfortable in order to engage in discussions of oppression, right? And the attention being centered on uh, your attention and, you know, other white people's attention being centered on your comfort and lack thereof, rather than on the person, again, who's experiencing racism and the discomfort of living that every day. Third example would be, that's not my intention, right? Where, you know, someone does something something racist, their attention gets gets called, right? Hey, you did this thing. And that's not my intention. I understand that. Nobody wants to be a bad guy and no one wants to believe that they've done something racist. But there's a consistent pull to shift the attention to what your intention was rather than the impact of your action. Is that example, that third example of that wasn't my my intention, is that the same as? Um, That wasn't my intention is focusing on what you thought you were doing or what you meant to do, quote unquote, versus what the impact of what you did and what actually happened. Okay, so that's how right, it's centering. Exactly. So let's say uh, said you're very articulate for a black guy, and I would be like, I should be. I got four college degrees. But nevertheless, let us talk about your racism because the inherent assumption there is that black people aren't articulate, and so mm-hmm. when I point that out, 
the response would be, wait a minute, that wasn't my intention. I wasn't trying to say that. Yes, but that's what you said. But your attention keeps going back to what you thought you did, what you thought you said, versus what you really thought you said. Mm-hmm. Your attention is centered on yourself, your feelings, on defending yourself, on your white fragility and your inability to handle anything distressing as it relates to race and racism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How can you not center yourself? I think the first thing is active listening. Uh, Well, first, let me say this. Robin, who wrote White Fragility, is brilliant. She's a friend of mine. That book is dope as hell. And It's really great. I recommend it. We'll pop it in the show notes. And so much of it is highlighted. I Yeah, I have all kinds of highlights and notes and everything in that book. What's really brilliant about, about that book is it's very plain articulation of things that are complex or that feel complex. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were talking earlier about what, what people can do, what white people can do, what members of dominant groups can do. You start with yourself. And starting with this idea of fragility, I think, is really important. Robin talks about white fragility, but the idea of fragility applies across all dominant groups. That being said, learning to develop some stamina as it relates to having discussions that make you uncomfortable and having the places where you have bias and have done biased things is a very powerful starting point. Because then that allows you to actively listen. And what that means is you listen to understand what I'm saying rather than to rebut what I'm saying or defend yourself. Defend yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that could be done is uh, what I call building bridges to to empathy and or bridges of empathy. So I was facilitating a group of men of color to talk about sexism. And Mm -hmm. in that conversation, I couldn't get the group to stay on a discussion of sexism. The conversation kept coming back to racism. And what I realized is that this group of men have not had an adequate opportunity to talk about racism. So we shifted and we talked about racism. And when it felt like a good segue, I switched the conversation to talking about sexism by pointing out that all of the things that you all are talking about right now occur with women in our relationships and our interactions with women and just sort of built from there. Yeah. So positionality and perspective taking are critical pieces of this. Perspective taking this is exactly what it sounds like. It's that you have the ability to take on and shift between multiple perspectives in a situation, right? And so what I was asking these men to do was imagine that you experienced those same things plus these additional things. Yeah. Right? Uh, talking about women of color and, and sexism. Mm-hmm. Positionality is your ability to understand and articulate your closeness to or distance from positions of power. Working on those two skills, uh, those three skills, is also a very good start, allowing you not to center yourself. But ultimately, what this uh, at the end of the day, it falls down. It, I got so many thoughts on this. At the end of the day, what it all boils down to is doing the work, quote unquote, in a sustained way, uh, in an engaged way, 
consistently. That means learning about yourself and your social identities and how your internalized dominance and your internalized subordination shows up. It means learning about people who are different than you and occupy different places of power. It means learning about intersections. It means learning about group dynamics and how the dynamics of oppression replicate themselves and show up in our individual relationships and in our relationships within groups and, and, and like mm-hmm. there's a million yeah. ways to, to go about that. Yeah. And I, I hope that this was a great introduction for people. I know you have so much more to offer and I want to tell people to go to your website and let you t- talk to them about that too. But I, before I forget, I want to encourage people to follow you on Instagram because I find your posts super helpful. So we'll put that link in the show notes. And is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up? Yes, that this is a super elementary, very beginning conversation. We talk about a lot of things in a very superficial way. To be honest, doing this work is challenging, but it's also deeply rewarding. It's, you know, learning myself, learning to deal with my own sexism was a challenge and a half. And I remember being completely overwhelmed at the enormity of it, Mm -hmm. just how big and how pervasive it is. And I also remember uh, um, the moment, the epiphany that I had of, oh my God, I'm a part of it. Like I've done this thing. I've I've mansplained the shit out of people. Like I've done that. It's a very disconcerting feeling. It is... Uh, it alters the way you understand the world, but also yourself in the world. It, it, it's, it's hard, y'all, but it's also mm-hmm. rewarding. Like the, the, the liberation and the connection and the, the freedom from your own stuff and freedom from other people's stuff. It's so, so, so worth it. And all of that being said, I invite you to join us in this work. I have an upcoming webinar that I mentioned earlier. I have Foundations of Social Justice, the new section of that running very soon. Um, I have a class after Foundations, only for people who have taken Foundations. That class is Self-Awareness for Social Justice, which helps us to uh, learn about ourselves and the ways that we have been impacted by oppression, either as a member of a dominant group or targeted group. Um, I'm currently working on a class on liberatory allyship. Um, that class is going to be dope. I have to say, the allyship course that I'm uh, that I'm creating is it's just comes along really well. And I'm working with uh, a couple of other educators, and um, I'm 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 of two minds for that course um, because I have a very different way of doing the work. I want it to have it available only to people who've taken foundations, so that they have an okay. understanding of what liberation is and how it works. And then they can apply that to allyship. And um, I also want to offer allyship stuff to everyone. So there might be two versions. There might be an eight-week version for people who have already taken foundations and maybe a 12-week version for people who have not. So we can use that first couple of weeks to talk about liberation and what it is and all of those sorts Mm -hmm. of things. Well, let me know when that one comes out because I definitely want to take it. And hopefully my listeners, I'm sure we'll get some people that sign up for your foundation course. 
because I highly recommend it. I highly, highly, highly put my gold stamp on it, recommend it. Thank you so much for your time. I cannot tell you how grateful I am for you and your work and just coming on here to talk to my people. I first, it's been my pleasure. Absolutely. It kind of tickles the hell out of me thinking, like remembering the look on your face when we were talking about liberation to now saying, okay, all right. (laughs) Because I I did the exact same thing. Yep, I'm telling you, I did the exact same thing. I was like, Barbara, I love you. I don't want to hear that shit you're saying because it's nonsense. And here we are. And so I want to invite people to have a, a hopeful perspective on this work. And it's really hard to yeah. do that when your primary source of information is Instagram, because it's a very toxic mm-hmm. place and it's full of anti this, anti that, your feelings aren't valid. Yo, listen, it's much more nuanced than that. Yeah. And if you have any questions, please feel free to email me. I'm happy to give you resources. I'm happy to give you primary resources. In other words, I'll give you the books that I'm learning from so you'll learn as I learn. Like, it doesn't have to be that way. We can do this work in ways that are fulfilling, that are enlightening, that leave leave us uh, feeling hopeful. And that doesn't mean that we don't do hard work, right? We absolutely do hard work. And Mm -hmm. we do it together in ways that are sustainable Mm -hmm. and that promote our collective and fullest humanity. I, and I think that you're thinking back to, and I've explained to you what my, what my face was about. And I think that part of that might've been, I don't, I'm really bad with remembering like dates and things like that. I don't think it was that long after the Kavanaugh and Christine Blasey Ford and all that went down. And Mm -hmm. I think coming off the heels of me too, and, and in 2017, I think really sort of mm-hmm. shook the shit out of many of us and re-traumatized us and, and probably no, kicked yeah, up trauma yeah. that many of us didn't know that we had. And when I say we, I'm, I'm talking predominantly about women. And I, I also think that that was the space I was still in. And I was tired, <laughs> both physically that day and collectively. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not making excuses. I'm just, I'm just saying that I, I want to invite people to mm-hmm. just make room for that for themselves. Because in that moment I was, yeah, yeah. cause I talk about feelings a lot over here. I was myself wrong for having right. those feelings in the first place. And I know from, cause what I teach, like that doesn't, mm-hmm. that doesn't help your healing. That doesn't help other people. Yeah. That, that just halts everything. And so, um, I find it interesting to hear your perspective on it because well, and so here's the other right thing. on there's this constant tension around centering and not centering. When members of dominant groups are thinking about themselves and their history and family dynamics and how they perceive and understand the world in the service of social justice, to me, that's not centering. Because, for example, if we want white people to think differently and do things differently because they are aware of racism and don't want to contribute to it, it means that they must reorient themselves to the world based on that understanding. What that means is you got to go back into your head and your history and figure out where did this come from? Where did I learn this? How did it show up uh, in my life as a young person? How does it show up now? Like there's a lot that is involved with learning to do things differently. It's, It's an inherent and necessary part of the work. Members of dominant groups 
have to dive into their own stuff in order to do better. The caveat is, where are you doing that? Right? Because not all spaces mm -hmm. are appropriate for you to do that. Not all times are appropriate for you to do that. So being clear about what's all right, yeah. So you have to figure out what spaces are appropriate, what spaces aren't. Um, you really have to, to, to be thoughtful about the ways that you're doing the work. But your feelings are valid. Your, your identity as someone who is white does not diminish the rage that you have as someone who is a woman that has experienced racism and patriarchy. Right? But those okay. two things can and do exist simultaneously. And all of those things are valid. And, you know, as a white person, your yeah. confusion or your sadness or your shock at being someone who has done racist things like, and legit, sometimes it is shocking. The feelings that you have around that, those are valid too. And those need to be unpacked as well so that you can learn and move forward. Yeah, in the appropriate place. Okay. <laughs> Thank you again so much for being here. And we, we're going to have a lot of links in the show notes. And everyone, I'm sure that Dr. T will be back. So if you have specific questions, you are so generous to be able to, to answer those on, on social media or via email. And I, again, I just want to emphasize, sign up for that program. If it is something that you can do with your schedule, I just go, go sign up for it. Everybody just go. Thank you so much for your time. I know this has been a longer episode than usual and you know how much I appreciate your time. I know how valuable it is. And until next time, ask kickers, I will see you all out in cyberspace. Bye-bye. 